welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Good morning, everyone. I'm, uh, I've never actually used this mic before, so John is it in the right place, and life's good. All right. Cool. Well, last week, um, Evan spoke on living the authentic you, and he made this statement. Do you want to do something amazing for God? Of course, he said amazing, right? <laughs> do you want to do something amazing for God? The most amazing thing that you could do for God would be to trade the appearance of being close to God for the power of actually being close to God. It would light up God's heart and as a byproduct, change the community around you. That was so exciting to me when I heard him say that last week because we're going after that. This is what we're going after this week, being actually close to God. And and I believe that's what's on his heart, that he wants us to be actually close to God. And that as a byproduct of that, what that would do to us, in us would be something that would affect the community around us. So let's take a moment and pray and we'll get into our message. Father, we want to be close to you. And Father, we want to be like you. Father, we want to have your heart. We want to walk in your ways. And Father, as we become like you, Lord, let us join in the family business. Lord, showing your love and bringing your life to those around us, to the glory of your name. Amen. So where we're going is being really close to God. But how we're going to start is with a dilemma. In 1 Peter chapter 3, if you could put up the slide, please. Um, Peter's talking to a group of churches that are in what would be modern-day Turkey. And there had been some persecution. This wasn't all-out persecution yet, but they had been persecuted and under threat of persecution. And he says this. He's talking about how, you know, if you, generally if you do what's right, you won't be punished. How shameful it is if you're punished as a Christian for doing what's wrong. But then he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Right? So they're under threat of persecution. And he says, there are these people that can make you suffer. Don't fear them. How do you obey that? How do you go about obeying that? It's so natural. It's just in us, right? When there's a threat, when there's a potential, we could suffer like even a little bit. Like there's no coffee in the house in the morning, something like that. We immediately, it's just inside us to be anxious about that, right? What if it was something more significant, like uh, actually being persecuted, something more serious? How could you do that? And he says this. He says, sanctify Jesus as Lord in your hearts. Now, when we think of the word sanctify and sanctification, um, we naturally think of 
kind of moral perfection, be more Christ-like. And that's true. That's actually in the scriptures, in the New Testament. But if you read the references for sanctification, much more frequently than um, talking about your moral character, it's actually talking about being set apart to God, right? And that's the root of what sanctification means. It's the same word that's translated holy in the New Testament. It's also translated um, sanctify. I mean, one's adjective and all that, but it's all from the same root, right? So when, it, when he says sanctify Jesus, it doesn't mean make Jesus better. Sanctify Jesus as Lord in our hearts. It's talking about um, being set apart to Jesus, that, that Christ would be the one that would reign in our hearts, right? Talk about being authentic. That sounds like authentic relationship with, with God, doesn't it? where he would be the one that, um, above all other circumstances, Jesus would reign and determine the condition of your heart. So we have this dilemma. How do you do that? And you know, you know how in the verse, it's actually have the part that's capitalized? They do that because that is a reference, an allusion to an Old Testament passage that's even worse. It comes out of Isaiah, which we have that, that for you too. And in the time of Isaiah, they were be, being threatened by the Assyrians. And the reason I'm doing another passage like this is so that you can see this isn't a one-time thing. This is actually a, a biblical theme, right, that, that God is supposed to be sanctified in our hearts as being holy. So... They're under threat of being invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians Assyrians were particularly brutal people. They did things like they'd come in, and especially if a city just wouldn't give up right away, they're going to make an example of them. So they would cut off limbs. They would take people that were alive and impale them on poles. I could get grosser than that. I mean... The worst story I heard, I just won't tell you. I don't want to give you nightmares. But they're really particularly brutal people. And he says the same type of thing. God says to Isaiah, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all this people called conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you are to regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. So, again, God calls us to be in a place where a natural person would just be terrified. But we won't because we're at a place in our hearts with God that, that delivers us out of that. And there are actually stories of people like this. Who's heard of John Wesley? John Wesley, right? He... He's the one, the founder of the Methodist Church, and of course the Wesleyan churches are all named after him. Did you know he was a missionary? He was English. Did you know he was a missionary to America before he was ever really a Christian? Yeah, so he was religious. You can be religious, right? You can be in church. His his grandfather was a minister. And, you know, so you can be a, a church person, and not be an actual Christian. So he came to Georgia. It didn't go well for him. In fact, he kind of left under scandal. And he's on the ship on the way back to Great Britain. 
and there's this big storm. And this wave comes crashing over the deck of the ship. The main sail falls down onto the deck. And Wesley and, and everybody starts screaming, right? Because they're terrified. Well, not everybody. Actually, there was this group of Christians called Moravians. And they came from Germany and ended up someplace else, Switzerland or some I forget. Um, but... This group, if you ever hear about them, they just they sent they were a small group, and they sent missionaries all over the world. Well, they're on the deck of this ship, and while everybody else is screaming, they're singing hymns. They're just singing along. And and John Wesley is talking to one of his Moravian friends at a at a later date and asking about that. And and he said, you know, how did you guys how do you how do you do that? And and what about your women and children? Weren't they afraid? And the guy said, no, they're not afraid to die. The women and children. The wave crashes over the ship. The sail falls on the deck. And they're singing hymns. How, that's our dilemma. How do you get to that kind of place? How do you get to that authentic, authentically deep, right? Because an authentic relationship can be bad. But an authentically deep relationship with God. How do you get there? Well, David got there, and that's what we're going to look at next. It's in uh, Psalm 27. And it says, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Right? See that confidence? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, and I said the Assyrians were brutal. I don't know who these people were that wanted to eat his flesh. My adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell, right? So David got to this place of confidence. And let's go on to the the next passage, um, next verse 3. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. So you see the same kinds of threats, you know, as Isaiah had, right? You're talking about invaders, and they would come, they'd encircle your city, and they'd starve you out if you locked the gates, and, you know, it would be terrible. So he had threats, but he stayed in this place of supreme confidence in God. Now, most of us know that our theology tells us we have good reason to have faith in God, that we can trust in God. We know our theology tells us that. But how did he enter into the reality to actually live that way? How did the Moravian kids enter into the reality to actually live that way? Well, let's look at that. In verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The temple, right, that's where God was present in a special way. He's always been everywhere, but his his presence was manifest, especially in the temple. He would go there to meet with God, to gaze upon, right? Take a long look at his beauty. And of course he did this, he's talking about doing this not once, 
but to constantly be going back into the presence, into the house of God. And then he says, to inquire in his temple, right? He's inquiring where, where God is, right? So, um, so that's what David would do. And this is a difference. For, you, for you, you who know the story, this is the difference between Peter walking on the water and Peter almost drowning in the water, right? Peter's eyes are full of Jesus, and he walks on the water. Peter's eyes get full of the wind of the waves, and he sinks. David's eyes were filled with the beauty of God and with the presence of God. And, and his eyes being filled with the glory of God are what allowed him to walk above every other circumstance. Isn't that beautiful? And where I think we are actually in this message is this takes us to a point where we have a beautiful idea. It rings true. I mean, the fact that God exists, he loves us, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. It's a truth that should capture us the way David was captured. And it should outweigh every other circumstance in life. We all know that. And yet it doesn't, does it? It's still not a reality for us. So let's talk a little bit more. Let's look back at what he did and talk about how we would actually do that in our lives. Remember, what we're looking for is being authentically close to God, that we would be close to God in such a way that it would actually transform us on the inside. Not that we just be religious people and good, good Christians, whatever that is, but that we would be actually transformed. Well, I'm going to look at it in reverse order. I'm going to look at first, what does it mean? What was he doing when he inquired in God's temple? We don't use the word inquire really anymore. James, the, I don't know, 10-year-old that lives across the street, he will come next door to inquire if Greg and Ona are home. And if they're home, can they come out and play, right? That's where they live, and he's coming for them, right, personally. So that's inquiring. David came to God's house to inquire of the Lord. And still, that word's kind of weird, but I don't have this verse for you, but I think it's in verse 8. It says something that I think explains what he really meant by inquire. He says, um, I think I have it here. He said, um, your the Lord had said to him, seek my face. And he says, your face, Lord, do I seek. Picture that. You're seeking. God says, seek my face. And, and David says, your face, Lord, do I seek. Right? It's, it's, a, personal, it's, an, it's a personal encounter. I'm coming to pers- become personally engaged with God. Don't take that too lightly. Because so much of what we do as Christians is not personal at all. We relate to God in um, this, a similar way to how we relate to our health regimen, right? I take my vitamins in the morning. I make sure I drink plenty of water. I, drink, I eat a salad. I try to get enough sleep. Some of you do exercise. Um, 
and we have these things that we do them. I go to church, I go to small group, I say prayers, I try to read my Bible a little bit every day. And I'm not even against those things. I recommend all of those things. But we fall short. We're not getting, we're not getting the profound change that God has for us if, if we're leaving it there on that kind of impersonal basis. People, especially men, um, men's ministry teaches you, you know, the Bible is manual for life. Was that false? Well, no, it's not false. It has wonderful principles, but it's meant for a step beyond that. It's great to, to know the principle that God is faithful so I can trust in him. That's good. But it's better to personally know the God that's faithful to know his faithfulness, to, to know he's a person that I can trust. That's, that's way stronger when it, gets, when it gets personal. Think about it. Think about it from his perspective, too. I mean, you know, he's in the room, and, and you say a prayer that's like a, a chant, right? And he's like, I'm here, you know? It's, it's like, would you pray that way if you thought God was really personally there in the room listening, would you worship that way if you thought God was personally in the room listening? Now, I don't want to put you all on a guilt trip, so I'm going to tell you a little story. So obviously I've been thinking about this stuff, right, because you're preparing to teach. And here I am, I'm in church last week, and during worship, and I'm thinking, I'm going to I'm going to proactively put my eyes on the fact that, that my father is here in the room and I'm personally before him and I'm going to sing to him. And I sing these worship songs to him. And I connect it with him in a wonderful way, just like the teaching said I should, right? And you know what happened then? My mind wandered. <laughs> my mind wandered. And it's like, you'd think that that would be pretty offensive to the God who created everything that he couldn't hold my attention, right? But the scripture says that God knows our frame, that we are but dust. It says that in Psalm 113 or 108 or something. It says it in the Psalms. He understands our weakness. So, you know, in this, it, I think it's much more like when somebody has a toddler, they're looking, they're looking for them to walk with squeaky shoes. No, they're just learning. They're just learning to walk. And when they fall down, it's not like, oh, I said come to daddy and what do you do? It's not that, right? You continue to encourage them. And I think that that's why, I think that's the way God is toward us. That he's glad I engaged with him, that I got distracted. He understands my frame that I'm but dust. The other thing, I just want to be practical, realistic about these things. It also says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Right? Our experience with God, right now we see dimly. It won't be until Jesus comes back that we're going to experience the fullness of it truly face-to-face, 
right? And if that was true of the Apostle Paul, well, with you, right, it's not going to be, he's the Apostle Paul. It's not going to be greater than that. So we, we understand the limits of where we are in this broken world. Heaven's not here yet. We get that. But even so, it is still true that God is a personal God. These aren't just religious principles without somebody behind them. There's a person. And, and the gospel that you heard probably when you got saved, you were probably invited into a personal relationship with God, right? Yeah. We want to continue to grow into it as a personal relationship. And of course, isn't that the way, isn't that what you see in the scriptures? Father, child, right? Shepherd, sheep. What the scriptures teach is a personal relationship. And he wants that. Jesus died so that you could have that, right? I wonder where I am on my notes. No idea. Oh, yeah. Take, so just a practical recommendation. You know, regularly, David sought to be in the temple in the presence of God on a regular basis. Take time to get alone with the Lord and remember, put your mind on the fact, what you already believe, if, you know, what, I know you may not all believe this because you may not all, be, not all be Christians, but every Christian believes he's really there, right? He's really in the room. So I'm just saying, be conscious to really enter into what you already believe, that he is there and that he is a person, and, then, and remember the wonderful promise in James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Right? Personally draw near. Well, the second thing he mentions is that he goes in, really mention it first, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, how are you going to do that? How did, how did David do that? Because, first of all, in his essence, God is spiritual. He wasn't physical. And Jesus hadn't even become incarnate yet, right? So there wasn't that. So he can't be talking about he's looking at the physical beauty of God. So what's he talking about? It doesn't make it very clear, honestly. But there are a couple of passages in the Old Testament where the word beauty, you know, a lot of times they'll say this and they'll kind of say it in another way, in different words. It makes beauty and glory synonymous, interchangeable. And so I think what David was looking at was the, the glory of God, the wonder of God. And there's a, a Psalm um, 36 that I think encapsulates this. Hopefully that's big enough for you to, to read it. Okay, so David is saying this to God, right? Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and your light 
do we see light? Don't you get the impression that David is just blown away with God? He's looking at him, and he's like, oh my, you are so amazingly beautiful. Sometimes, sometimes during worship, my eyes will land on this cross, and I think about the fact that God would sacrifice himself on the cross for us. And I, I find it amazing. We're going to do a little thing here. I see if it works for you. Let's all close our eyes. And, and what you see is all black because we're looking at the physical universe and it hasn't been created yet. Now let's imagine that God opens your eyes so that you can see into the spiritual realm. And if you're looking far enough back in history, all you see is the pre- this glorious presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having fellowship together. And it's glorious, but there's nothing else. And then at some point, he creates the angelic world and all these angelic beings come into being. And you just, you just see them flying around and, and being there in, in glory. And now your eyes are close to the, phys- to the spiritual universe and all you see is the physical realm again. And God speaks the physical universe into existence and it just explodes, right? Big bang. And, and, and the, all the stars and the planets are all going out there. And then on one little speck, God puts life. And he actually puts puts one type of life, he puts a a little reflection of himself. And in that reflection would come um, art and music and and scientific discovery and, and love and all the richness of life. And you can open your eyes. And That God that did all of that because he valued what he did on that little speck and because of what he did on that little speck became broken, right? It broken and it lost its original purpose that he had for it because he valued it and loved it so much. He sacrificed himself on the cross. Isn't that beautiful? But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, so we look at, we let our minds be filled with the beauty of God on a regular basis. And the beauty of God is never less than good theology, right? Because if it's less than good theology, if it's not the true God you're gazing at, it's, idro- it's idolatry. So, we need to know the scriptures. We actually need to know the scriptures. We can't just go off human experience and emotions because they'll lead us in bad places. But good theology is not enough. What David did was not just know these truths. He gazed at them until he was changed into a person that had supreme confidence in God. He gazed at the beauty of God. I always like it in teachings like this 
when there's like a passage that is much more explicit about this truth. And we've got one. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul had been talking about Moses and how when Moses met with God, his fa- it caused his face to glow with the glory of God. And he would come out of the tabernacle having met with God and his face, that his face would still be glowing. The impact would still be there upon him, right? The glory of God. And, and Paul has been explaining how um, for us, the impact is actually much greater because of the Holy Spirit, right? In the, in the age of the church. And, and then he says, then he says this. And he says, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding, not glancing at, beholding, right? Like, like David, gazing. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding the glory of God, that process of beholding God's glory changes us into the same image from one degree, little bit by little bit, right? So you got to keep doing it. It's not a one-time thing. Go have a good time with the Lord and it changes everything. No, right? But it says it will change us into the very same, into the very same image. That's how we actually fulfill our, bo- our calling to be the body of Christ, Right? Because it's one thing as a body of Christ to go out and do the same things that the, the works that he have us do, but we're supposed to actually look like him when we do it. We're supposed to do it in that same spirit. And for that to happen, we need to be transformed. Let's get back to the, the idea of sanctification, separated, separated, set apart to him. When we look at the, the glory of God and we see the beauty and we come into agreement that God's ways are life, God's ways are good, that's what enables us to actually give ourselves over to him. We enter into agreement with him, and we come over to his side. It's so much more powerful than being browbeat with rules would ever do. It changes us because we're actually convinced. God, you're beautiful. Your ways are beautiful. Your life is beautiful. An authentic relationship with God is one in which we relate to him as a person because he's a, he is a person. An authentically deep relationship with God is one in which we behold his beauty to such an extent and, and over time to where it actually transforms us into the very same image. The roots of this message go back two and a half years. We were going to have a conference in our church. I forget the conference, but I remember that Hannah Despain, this wonderful worship leader out of Campbellsville, Kentucky, she was going to come lead worship at the conference. And some of us were, were praying ahead of time, like a couple weeks ahead of time, and I saw this picture. Hannah was up here leading worship, and everybody's standing and all throughout the congregation, not every single person, but throughout the congregation, I saw you know, people engaged with God and these columns of light came on them. And I understood that what was happening was this process that in worship, in recognizing the beauty of God and engaging God, 
recognizing his beauty, that the people were being, they were being set apart to him. They were being sanctified through worship. So that's why I actually wanted to have worship after the message today. So have an opportunity to worship God, remembering that he's personally in the room, and we sing to him. And if your mind wanders, there's grace, and you just re-engage with him. After that, we're also going to have an opportunity, we're going to um, prophetic worship, I'm sorry, prophetic communion, where it's another opportunity to engage with him. Let's worship.